Well, I've wrapped up my coffee. What were you drinking there, Chris? That looked interesting. I am drinking very healthy water in the form of ice, and I have surrounded it with whiskey. <laughs> oh, I'm so naive. I was like, it looks like a nice apple juice or something. It is not an apple juice, no. It's very good. It's very smooth. Welcome, affixes, aficionados, fixes, to the Affix Podcast, the fortnightly podcast covering the modern conversations of the internet intelligentsia. Wait, not the historical conversations of the internet intelligentsia? The internet intelligentsia of the 1500s or the 2000 PCs? All of the Twitter sphere and the blogosphere from back then? Well, I think of like 2005 as ancient history in terms mm, of the history mm-hmm, of the internet mm-hmm. intelligentsia. That's fair. And I know Tyler likes to sometimes link his 2005 posts with insights on the Nazi regime or something, but... He's been blogging you know a long time. It's still ancient history. I remember, like, sorry, before we even get into our first segue, I've got a segue, but on one of the podcasts we were talking about, he was talking about the history of Afghanistan, and, oh, I was there in 2005 kind of thing, and it was pretty metropolitan. Everyone was on their Instagram and looking at their smartphones. I'm like, iPhone came out in 2006. I don't think that's what was happening there, buddy. I thought iPhone was like 2007, not even 2006. Maybe 2007, but like definitely he was picking a date that predated iPhone and talking about how everyone in Afghanistan was on Instagram. I'm like, they definitely weren't. No. The the modern era is much more modern than you think it is. Somehow I'll get back to what I was doing in the introduction. So this is the podcast (laughs) where we discuss the musings of the internet intelligentsia, whether it's their writings of books or their writings of blogs or their podcasts or whatever. One day we'll find a YouTube video to talk about, I'm sure. But we cover all of those conversations, we make obscure bets somehow generated from them with the high stakes of a coffee, and I talk about my love of Diablo 2 while Chris powers through it. Which only deepens. I keep thinking that you would get bored of Diablo 2 and pick some other game, but you are just getting deeper and deeper into this world, aren't you? Uh, it's quite the rabbit hole. Anyway, how do we kick it off? We always love to kick off every week with feedback to ourselves on listening back to the previous podcast. So you know what? I actually better bring up the show notes because I usually like to look at the show notes because Chris does great notes and sometimes there's little surprises in there for me too. Yeah, sometimes I like to make jokes. Eh, I did actually read these. That's not that bad. (laughs) Okay, so we were talking about the realities of taxing billionaire wealth a couple of episodes ago, I think it was. Sure, in the form of wealth tax. We talked about inequality and then we followed it up with a little bit of inequality. (laughs) Yes. Intelligentsia loves some inequality. I mean, it's just how you know that you're superior. So my general thought here was like taking away billionaire wealth and addressing poverty. There's a general pretty persuasive argument for it in terms of diminishing marginal utility or, you know, the whole point that we talked about with Vitalik on suffering is only halved with a doubling of income, right? So by taking away income from the people at the very top, you can have a much more substantial impact on the suffering of those at the bottom. Yes. And I guess this is tying to the conversation about like, for others to have more, we have to have less. And that's kind of the redistributive argument for it, right? It's not that they have to have that. It's just, it is very efficient to actually do that. It feels like low hanging fruit, which I sort of agree with. I think maybe there is some low hanging fruit still there. Yeah. But at the same time, the struggle with all the arguments that we have, and that is a constant conversation in the internet intelligentsia is the second order effects of that redistribution how does taking away from the people who are creating that excess value set yourself up to continue 
growing and creating even more excess value in the future, does it disincentivize growth, basically? Sure. And yep. it's a fine balance to make. Not even disincentivize, but just handicap, right? Like, I don't know whether Peter Thiel has explicitly come out and said this, but this is one of the descriptions of his views. Is like, there are just some people who are smarter and more productive than anyone else, and we should give them all the wealth because they're going to turn it into even more wealth. And Jeff Bezos is one of those. So we should be taxing all the poor people and giving that money to Jeff Bezos because he's going to invest it in a real smart way and create more wealth in general. Yeah, we've recommended Tyler Cowen's books a lot. So we've recommended Big Business. Also recommend Stubborn Attachments. It's only like 80 pages long or something. It's pretty short, worth reading. Yeah, I think he describes that just about as his magnum opus, right? It's one of the, his books that like most expounds on his philosophy. Yeah, and he's got some good like moral arguments around what's the like future timescale that you should be trying to factor in. And if you think that humanity is actually not going to last very long, then redistribution becomes a much bigger priority because there's yeah. there's less yep. need to concern yourself with those incentives around growth or the ability yep. to grow. But he also does touch on that point. Like looking at the very long run, you can come up with some pretty obscure arguments for redistributing wealth to the most wealthy because the most wealthy empirically earn better returns on their wealth than the most poor. Yeah, yes, indeed. So if you focus only on positive sum games, you can end up increasing suffering overall while also increasing net wealth overall. Yeah, increasing net wealth over a longer time horizon by decreasing overall well-being in the immediate term. So there's some wacky stuff in philosophy. And that's maybe why my brain gets so engaged by it. I don't know. Yeah, it's interesting. The other thought I had on the same sort of theme, just to extend this conversation even further, was looking at taking away billionaire wealth and addressing poverty Especially, you know, we bring up Jeff Bezos all the time. And I guess the core fundamental argument of this is by saying that we should tax the wealth from billionaires, you kind of in a way saying, you know, by taking that wealth, we'll take a stake of Amazon and we are going to destroy that value and instead reprioritize fixing the problem of warlords over the existing fixed problem of overnight delivery, right? Amazon has solved the problem of overnight delivery. I mean, not in COVID, they haven't, but sure. <laughs> Fair. And we're expecting the government to somehow turn the money that they take from those share values into paying, I don't know, an army to go overthrow warlords in Afghanistan or, you know, just solve homelessness in Australia, right? Yep. And I can see an argument there, but there's like two things to it. First up, there's the classic libertarian argument, which is there's nothing stopping any individual person from just paying less for worse delivery and then just donating the savings they have to charities. Yes. So it's like, could be revealed versus stated preferences. Yep. That feels like a very Brian Kaplan argument to me. Very much so. The other argument is kind of what we touched on last week, which is just the cost of fixing some of these problems is inordinately high. And even if you tax away 100% of the wealth of Amazon, you're still not going to be able to fix it. Sure. Yeah. It's not a problem that seems to be that amenable to money right? It's a difficult problem and we haven't really found the solution. Education in the United States keeps getting more and more money thrown at it every single year and it doesn't seem to get any better. Not, not yep. really money that's the problem, it's something else in the system, in the incentives, in the structure, in the measurement, something else is the problem. Throwing more money at it is not the problem. Yeah, I just read Roots of Progress this morning on the history of workers' compensation and yeah. looking yep. at the impacts of system level thinking there, that was... Uh, pretty inspiring in a way. And perhaps that's what some of these problems need more of, not just lobbying and anti-capitalism or oh, the current system's the worst. It's just, well, let's figure out a new way to structure a system that could have better incentives for everyone involved. I don't know. Relying on empowering the individual, like Kaplan would typically do, 
I don't think is very yep. reliable. But at nope. the same time, just relying on regulators or bureaucrats to come in and fix it all for you, I think is equally unreliable. Yeah. Yep. Man, that article could honestly be a whole podcast. For sure. So that were my two points. I don't think I really had much more on Mataglacius other than the fact that we managed to follow the first and second rules of Fight Club in that we didn't talk about Fight Club. We didn't talk about Fight Club, much as you wish we'd won. We got a congratulations on how hard we managed to pat each other on the back of saying how good Donald Trump was. So we're already about to get cancelled on Twitter, unfortunately. <laughs> Fabulous. Sorry, just on the taxing Jeff Bezos, it's really interesting how hard that backfires. Because like taxing Amazon as a wealth tax and you know taking part of Amazon and selling it and destroying that value and whatever, I am very against. But like I can be pretty for the idea of... Maybe Jeff Bezos doesn't need his personal spaceship or maybe he doesn't need the seventh mega yacht. I don't know whether he's a real mega yacht guy, but mega yacht is the quintessential billionaire flamboyance kind of thing. And it just yep. reminds me of an anecdote of in Europe, they did try to post massively high taxes on mega yachts. Like in Australia, we have a luxury car tax, which means any car costing over, I want to say about $70,000 attract a very high tax on the entire cost of the car. So BMWs, Porsches, you know, expensive cars are really expensive in Australia. And it doesn't actually seem to stop people buying them because they're in certain sense. What are they? Veblen goods where the more expensive they are, the more desirable they are because they yep. show off how fancy you are as a person. But Europe tried this and they tried to tax all the mega yachts and then all the mega yacht factories started to sh lose orders and have to lay people off. And then the mega yacht lobby was like, look at all these jobs and they're just normal everyday guys and they've got families to feed and you can't tax it. You're destroying our whole industry. And so they removed the tax and it's like, there's only so many ways you can go after the billionaires, right? And one of them is to stop their consumption so they have to invest more. And mega yachts are not really very good for society, even if they provide jobs for the people working to build mega yachts. Those jobs are better off working on like almost anything else, I would argue. Oh my God, yeah. Taxing luxury goods and yeah, goods with negative externalities, obviously. But luxury goods is one of the things that goes back the longest in terms of tax history. Like you say, mega yachts there. Back in the 1700s, 1800s, they used to tax luxury like horse buggies. So. Sure. And cloth, I think, fancy cloth got taxed. I mean, it, yeah, it seems like an obvious thing to tax to me. Like the luxury car tax doesn't go anywhere near far enough. And like, I kind of want to buy a luxury car and it's going to hit me pretty hard. And not to maybe stops me buying a luxury car, but definitely luxury boat taxes, luxury house taxes. There should be all the luxury taxes. I think that that is the way that you, I mean, they, they seem like more efficient taxes to me. Here's the potential argument back for that, right? How much innovation trickles down from the luxury goods through to consumer yeah. level goods? Like it's, it's Porsches, reasonable. Teslas, et cetera, et cetera. Yeah, yeah. Classically, whatever is on the, the Mercedes S-Class is going to be on a Corolla in 20 years. That's the thing. And I, I genuinely think that radar-guided cruise control probably came out in an S-Class in like the very late 90s. And you can now get radar-guided cruise control as standard on every Toyota Corolla. So yeah. it is the cutting edge kind of thing. And it does probably... Yeah, you can't have the margin to do that level of R&D without charging ridiculous prices and actually being able to make the sales. So, you know, if anyone can figure out what has trickled down from the luxury yacht industry into general mm. consumer goods, I would be very interested. That would be an interesting bit of feedback. Definitely that would be an interesting bit of feedback. It's a harder one. All right. What have you got for us, Chris? Well, I got a couple of people. Like we specifically put the call out on, you know, the hiring and firing powers of ministers over the department. It does sound yes. like I, mean, I know some people work for the ACT government, so I got a bit of that flavour, and some people work for the federal government, I got a bit of that flavour, but they're less certain. In the ACT government, there does seem to be a specific bureaucrat who is the chief of staff kind of equivalent. I know that's an American term, but we have an Australian equivalent, and they are responsible for the firing and firing of the high levels of government, and the ministers do have sway over those, so they don't have 
direct, direct power, but they have a reasonable amount of power in higher firing. But the anecdote that everyone wanted to tell me, and this feels like an anecdote that you would know because he's such a knowledgeable man, is apparently when John Howard took power in 2002, <laughs> sometime before I really came 96, to 96, I believe it was, yeah. 96, right. He's hacked most of the SES. Like he just like took an axe to the ranks and took all of the old Whitlam Menzies kind of senior public servants and cleared them all out. So there you go. Uh, the prime minister does have that power to attack the public service at the head kind of thing. And I do know he was also famous for increasing the ranks of the SES. So the something special service, the really high paying ones, but the Bryans of the world, as you will. <laughs> so if he, he wanted a lot of highly paid, if you're hiring... Yeah, he sacked a lot of the assistant secretaries and secretaries, et cetera, at the top of the department, but then he increased and swelled those ranks a bit more to have more talent. And yeah, I don't know. I found that interesting that clearly a government can, but it's not very common. I had also heard the anecdote that the current government really doesn't want thinkers at the top of government. They just want, you know, the politicians to make the decision and they just want executors. So all they want out of their public servants is like, here's the plan, go and do it. And, you know, that requires a fairly high level of ability, but they don't want strategic thinkers or anything in the public servants, possibly to their detriment. Mm-hmm. Maybe not if you're hiring. <laughs> Maybe not. You're not a strategic thinker. You're just a bean counter. Come on. It's <laughs> <That's> true. <laughs> you're very good at counting beans, which is why they pay you so much money. But I don't know whether you've got anything in you above that. I'm very strategic in my way that I count beats. You know, I divvy it up into a grid and then work through multidimensionally. Ah, there is an interesting point. So it is the opinion of a lot of public servants from particularly from back in the day. And I question this, that, you know, the public servants used to be frank and fearless. You know, they would tell the minister if the minister was wrong, the public servants would not be afraid to tell the minister, you're wrong. This is better for a society and this is the way we should go. And... That was what the public service would do, and that has been watered down again and again lately. And I hear that's from a lot of public servants that it used to be better back in the day. I do wonder whether this is just rose-tinted glasses and, like, all the people who say it used to be better back in the day were, like, junior and their grads kind of thing, and all the bosses were like, oh, God, all I have to do is whatever the minister tells me to. But it is a widely held opinion. And one of the reasons given for that is freedom of information laws. Like, it used to be that the public servant could push back on the minister and say, you're wrong, here we do it. And the minister might ignore them, but they might be more likely to listen. Now, if the minister ever ignored advice, it would just be a huge embarrassment to them if it ever went wrong. So they like they put a lot of pressure to never get that advice in the first place. That's an interesting takeaway. <laughs> it is okay. a very interesting take. And, you know, it's not supported by any particular incident, but it's a plausible path kind of thing of why ministers do not want advice because if they get advice, ignore it, and then are proven wrong, it's horrendously embarrassing for them. Yeah, just negative informational value. <laughs> yeah, okay. exactly. And so, you know, and then you don't promote the people who are giving you advice at all. You only promote the people who are just executing on whatever the hell you tell them to do. It sort of thins out the top ranks of the public service, right? Yeah, I mean, it's an easy story to tell. Look at a lot of the speculation on health departments in the various state governments as COVID's rolled out. And, you know, what's his name? Brad Hazard getting grilled by some commission from the Senate, I think it was, in uh, the New South Wales state government about when he had been given advice to lock down by Dr. Chant or whoever it is who's the... Yeah, Dr. Chant sounds right. So I can see the story. Like, if you've been told something and you ignored it's good, it... It's an interesting yeah, story. There's been a lot of commissions, et cetera, about those kind of incidents, whether it's bushfires, whether it's COVID. Yep, minister didn't listen to advice and then a bad thing happened. Yeah, it's an interesting narrative. So anyway, it's sort of it's uncertain and this email specifically called out that it's uncertain, but that's a that's a compelling and interesting perspective on why the public service may have been watered down in terms of being able to push back to ministers and that that is not the kind of person that a minister is willing to promote anymore. Is that a good thing? If we want our ministers to make all our decisions, if we're actually running a democracy, is that reducing the power of the deep state? 
Sure. So I can certainly see the argument of, from the government, government, which is like we elected people to make the grand strategic decisions. We should let them do them and the public service should be executing. But I also have my reservations in that politicians, like I just have reservations about politicians because I think what they're good at doing is politicking, not governing necessarily. Unfortunate though that is. Yeah, I, I, I sort of like the idea of career bureaucrats who have been in the health department for 20 years and have an idea how that's actually going to operate rather than someone who's been campaigning and has only just gotten in this election and is now in charge of the health department or has grand plans to be in charge of some other department and is just using this ministry ship as a, as a stepping stone and don't really care at all. Yeah, that's the old... Careerism? Well, it's careerism, it's meritocracy as well, right? And mm. it's transfer learning between things. You can be really, really good at politicking doesn't mean you're really, really good at general leadership. Sure. Doesn't mean you're really good at strategic thinking. Yeah. Okay, that was definitely some good feedback, I thought. I don't, I don't totally have the answer, but it does seem like there's some hiring and firing power, and sometimes it gets really used as in the, in the Howard era kind of thing. Yep. So Malcolm Turnbull, pretty unlikely to actually fire an individual call centre operator, but might fire the head of that whole department and replace them. Yes, I feel like I probably could have guessed that if I was, if I was going to take bets. <laughs> I don't think it was ever going to be uh, firing call centre workers just because he didn't like their face. Do you think Jeff Bezos would ever do that? Just to like... <laughs> I mean, they, um, you know, there's all these stories about Jeff Bezos and how hands-on he is and everything. Like, apparently he, even up until a couple of years before he retired to being chairman of the board, he would take some Amazon customer complaints like to support an Amazon.com personally and he would email you directly. He would read a half a dozen a week kind of thing to just stress how important that is all the way down to the very bottom because I'm guessing the people who normally read those emails probably not very highly paid. Yep. There you go. Well, he built it from the ground up. He's got a strong sense of ownership. Got a strong sense of ownership. Filled a not inheritor. Just to call back to Balajai. It's been a long time since we mentioned that guy. Oh, I told you I listened to a Balajai podcast. You'll be surprised to hear that it was over four hours long again. Dude can talk. Dude has a lot of words that he can say. <laughs> There's a lot going on in that guy's brain. Yeah, he's, he's a thinker. Cool. So just in between topics, just want to make sure that we recognize all the listenership out there. We really appreciate everything you do and especially our patrons. You can find a link in the show notes to support us on Patreon. You cover all our service costs. You incentivize us to keep creating this content. And oftentimes you give us excellent feedback and ideas for new topics to discuss. So really appreciate everything you do for us. Absolutely. Thank you very much, patrons. Uh, it is really nice to have you on board. It's really nice to have all the listeners on board. And also, while we're doing our little community outreach kind of thing. I want to talk about the Discord because I sort of, we've had a Discord for a bit and Brian would haphazardly throw a link in there and I would ignore it for a while, but it's actually been a little bit more active. I'm not saying there's a huge community there, but if you want to get a bit more of a, a feeling and some additional reading with the show, it's actually been more of an active community and I've been enjoying that quite a lot. The things that I would share privately with Brian, I now share on the Discord and we can have a little bit of discussion at there. So if you want to join the Apex Discord, that's also in the show notes and we'd love to have a chat with you on all the things we're talking about and many other things besides. Fantastic. Thank you very much. Okay, so since we did all that discussion on government, I feel like it's appropriate to discuss what is a very current day topic for the internet intelligentsia, for what we discuss on the Affix podcast. Yeah, we're doing the news. We promised not to do the news, but we're doing the news. <laughs> At least the internet intelligentsia equivalent of the news. <laughs> yeah, pretty much. Their current obsession with Australia and our COVID response. They don't like a lockdown. They don't like them at all. So as you can imagine, from many of the references we've made to a lot of the American writers, a lot of them that we tend to reference are kind of centre-right. I know Matt Iglesias that we covered last week, centre-left, so, you know, good to balance it out, I suppose. But heavily focused on 
liberty, essentially. And even Matt Iglesias yeah. would be fairly focused on individual empowerment at the very least. I mean, I think that is an undercurrent of all American politics. And I would say, yeah, I feel like I read some communists, I read some heavy left, I read some center left, but, you know, libertarians would be disproportionate in my reading. I think that I could name more libertarians than any other political spectrum, and it's probably like one of the least common political spectrums, at least by votes. Yeah. So as they've seen lockdowns progress and get harsher and harsher in Australia in response to COVID, as the Delta outbreak has kind of ravaged New South Wales at first and then Victoria second, despite best efforts with lockdowns going pretty hard very early in Victoria, seems the replication rate of the Delta strain is just too high for it to be really contained, unfortunately. Yeah, you can't beat Delta. So it's just a kind of matter of managing it. And some of the restrictions that have been brought in after our early success last year just seem abhorrent, I'd say, to the more libertarian-minded American commentators that we tend to read. Is that kind of the summary you'd say? That is fair. We, we are getting singled out around the, particularly the American squawking class kind of thing as how horrible we are and are we a fascist state now and can we truly pretend to be a liberal democracy in a modern era if we're doing this to our own citizens? Yeah, pretty much so. Like, And there's there's some good points in general that I would I mean, say. There's on some very like, good points. Restriction on movement international, like not being able to leave your own country, that is actually a proper human rights violation. And I would firmly say that that is just wrong. Like, I'm just going to put it yep. down. Like, the fact that you cannot leave Australia, even if you want to, without going through excessive bureaucratic procedures. Yeah, means testing, you know, uh, compassionate reasons or that kind of thing. Yeah, you cannot yeah. leave Australia right now, which is a breach of human rights. You cannot travel from state to state, which is a breach of human rights. Yeah, which, you know, like, very forgiving of it in Australia, because generally, like, nothing else bad is happening here. To layer on top of that, we're not like using that as a blocker to actually round up people and put them in concentration camps or anything, which would yep. be what was on everyone's mind when they enshrined it in the whole doctrine of human rights. Yeah, is it the Geneva Convention or that's a war? Yeah, maybe? the Geneva Convention sounds about right. It's definitely something important. <laughs> I, I mean, even more egregious, well, I don't know, equally as egregious as that, like Australia has diplomats who were in India and they were accepting zero flights from India. So Australia has sent you over there as an Australian diplomat to India. And if you want to come home, you can't. It's illegal. You can't come home. We have sent you yep. there. You're stuck there while this Delta wave is going through India. You cannot come home. So definitely there's some pretty hardcore stuff in there that I would pull apart. And I think that's the strongest arguments against it. At the same time, there's a lot of discourse around, you know, the effectiveness of lockdowns, how well can our health system handle it? What's the right thing to do? And I would also just say like Australians... This probably played out a bit in our second ever episode. Australians tend to like to be rule followers as much as we yeah. might like idolise the think Bushmen. There is a there is a defiant streak in Americans that is not present largely in Australians. I think there is a you know it's my gun and it's my property and you know I'm here for God and country and you cannot ever take that away from me that Australians just don't have. Well, I'll also say, and this is the thing that I'd thought many many times during that last conversation. There's just a streak in Australians that we look at each other and we're like, you're a fool. I cannot mm. trust you to make good decisions. And mm. we apply that to everyone around us. And we're like, well, to address that foolishness, we need some laws in place so we all get on the same page and we can coordinate properly. You yeah. over there, yeah. idiot, you're not going to wear a seatbelt. And then I'm going to have to pay for your hospital bills <laughs> when you get in a car accident. Same thing with you, cyclist. Why are you wearing a helmet all the time? Oh, drink driving. 
Well, of course you're going to go out and have a few. We've got to stop that. doesn't matter how much we could educate anyone. Now, drink driving. Yeah, look, drinking impedes your decision-making ability. So I think that's a pretty solid one. Seatbelt laws, cycling laws. Maybe there's like an information gap there. But at the same time, we're pretty embracing of having those rules. Whereas in America, I think they've got states that don't even have helmet laws for motorcycles, let alone bikes. Really? Wow. Yeah, I think helmet laws for bikes are more rare. They do have seatbelt laws, I think, America-wide at least. Yeah, just to carry the point. Yeah, I agree that Australians maybe are more willing to admit that we're all idiots and we need a bit of protection kind of thing. And we are. I mean, this point got brought up that we're not an armed populace, so we can't uprise against our government. Like, there's some dystopian shots of the police commissioner, you know, arresting a bunch of 19-year-olds having a party at the beach to keep us all in line kind of thing. And they're like, that would never happen in America because the cops would be worried about being shot. I'm like, that... That, that's probably true. I'm not actually sure that's a better society, but you're probably right. Is That's one of the reasons why it wouldn't happen in America. Yeah, it may well happen that some of those 19-year-olds would end up dead in America. But yeah. yeah. Yeah, I'm not convinced that that is a better thing. So yeah, so we get criticised a lot for giving up significant liberty. And I, I've been a critic of Australia, particularly, you know, it's, it's, very, it's very evocative to say that you're breaching my human rights. Like uh, that comes with a hell of a lot of force but you know i've said it and i believe it sort of thing and i think that the lockdowns were maybe somewhat too strict early on that we couldn't even see each other outside and we have to wear masks outside but there's huge criticism because we've handled the pandemic differently to everyone else so we we locked down hard and early and we managed to be relatively free and then we completely screwed up our vaccine rollout so we are the we were at least for a time the worst in the oecd in terms of vaccination rates and now as a result we have to have these incredibly strict lockdowns because we don't have a vaccinated population anymore or yeah. never have something. And at the same time, we didn't have any immunity built up from people just suffering the disease itself, which is a good thing. But, yeah. you know, other populations, when they got hit with Delta, did not see quite as high reproductive rates because there was some level of yeah, immunity. Yeah, because a reasonable percentage had already had, had some level of code. Yes. Yeah. So in general, like, yes, the ability to foresee and get a vaccination rollout, et cetera, et cetera. Like, yeah, totally. Jolly Swagman's got a great podcast on it just because I seem to spruik him every second episode somehow. Fantastic podcast. Fantastic podcast. I haven't listened to him for a while. Getting back in on that one was spectacular. Dude, dude is going to be the prime minister right one day. I think I said, oh, that's so disappointing when you said, oh, he's going to get into politics. And now I'm like, I'm super keen to vote for him. He's got my vote for PM, <laughs> no doubt. He could run for the United Australia Party and I'll be like, yep, that's the guy I want. He'll fix him. <laughs> all right, bold. So there were a couple of points in this. First of all, so we'll probably link a bunch of different articles in here. We've got the Atlantic write-up on, you know, Australia did so well and now they've become an anti-liberal democracy, whatever. They're just becoming a fascist state. You've got Tyler Cowan having commentary on it. And, and it was exactly the same commentary as he applied to America. But pushing, you've just got to get everyone vaccinated. You've just got to get everyone vaccinated. You've got to get those AstraZeneca vaccines into people's arms. And we've got the availability there. If you're so big on individual rights, like, I guess, what are the levers we can play here? Like, is it just a matter of we just need to create more incentives for getting AstraZeneca into arms? But at the same time, it takes, it's got a longer dose schedule than everything else? I'm not sure. Yep. Where I found, I mean, you're right, he criticised the hell out of the American government. And maybe I'm just taking it personally because it's my country, but it did seem to be criticising the Australian government in a worse way. And it's like, oh, you're nowhere near the efficient frontier. Why aren't you doing monoclonal antibodies? Why aren't you paying people to get vaccinated? Why and blah, 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 this and that and the other. And I'm like, I don't know, man, because governments are just like bad at doing all the things that you say they should be. I don't think the fact that we're taking away liberty and you're taking away lives necessarily makes us a worse place than you. Like, 
were equally bad, probably. You know, in early early on in the pandemic, there was some people saying like the Australian government is uniquely listening to the science and we're much better at dealing with exponential growth and we really understand it. It's like, that's probably wrong, right? The Australian government and bureaucracy is just as bad as everyone else in the world. We just happened to be an island and we got it wrong differently. We're getting it wrong now. But they seem to be really laying in the hammer because everything's, I guess, more fine everywhere else and they're sort of, they've given up and so they just really want to smack us around. Could be that. Could be a bit of, yeah, just wanting to justify where they got to. I, I don't think it is that generally. Like if I look at the commentary from November or even January from Alex Tabarrok or Tyler, like it's pretty similar to what's being applied to Australia. I guess the one thing where they are really laying the boot in is just saying, and the Australian populace is so tolerant of having this boot on their yeah. neck. Yep, that's true. And you know what? And, and there's a lot of people supporting that boot. Yeah, there really are. Like... I got super depressed hanging out on the coronavirus down under Reddit when, I don't know, like some guy was saying, stop telling me how to raise my kids. I'll raise my kids and I'll take care of them. I don't need your anti-COVID advice. And I said, okay, but what if you just let other parents make the same decision? We don't have to have a law in place. And I got like abused for that. Yeah. Like, if yep. you want to justify your position as a parent, you will make your decisions for your kids. Why can't I have the same ability to make decisions for my kids? If your decisions for your kids become law, then I don't have that ability anymore. People really want their decisions to apply to everyone. That's like universal. People hate other people choosing different to them because it's a, you know, what are you saying? Am I wrong? Or, you know, I know you're wrong. Or but once people have made a decision, they want everyone to make the exact same decision. That's wild, man. That's wild. Hey, yeah, I don't like it. I don't like it at all. And I don't like that. Yeah. Yeah. The Australian coronavirus down under Reddit is going off the deep end, like looking at all the shots of people enjoying the beach because it's nice weather and you can go outside. I think that's pretty fine. Like we've vaccinated most of our vulnerable. It's outside where there's a low chance of transmission. That seems a nice thing to do. And someone's like, oh, well, if you look at, you know, you count, there's 10,000 people there. So 10 of them are going to get COVID. So that's fine. And then another person's like, well, when those 10 people die, you won't say that. I'm like, it doesn't have a hundred percent death rate. It's not even close to a hundred percent death rate. <laughs> I've made the observation before. Maybe if it did have a 100% death rate, it would have stopped by now. Yeah, yeah, yeah. We would have actually been scared enough to avoid it and we wouldn't have these political divisions of like, maybe she'll be right, mate, or maybe we should all lock down. I don't know, you know. Yes, yeah. a more lethal virus like SARS-1. Uh, it was SARS-1, right? That was the really terrifying one that had... MERS was worse, but SARS-1 was actually like, yeah, that was the big news thing that was super terrifying. Yeah. So, and it got under control fast because it was truly, truly terrifying. Whereas this is pretty scary and, you know, in a statistical way, it's ending a lot of lives and we should do a lot about it, but it's hard for an individual to get super worked up about it, which is why I think government mandates are important and work in this instance because we're very bad at valuing a statistical life. Well, it was that way at the start. It feels like, I don't know, maybe it's just by hanging out on that Reddit for so long. It feels like people have kind of overestimated how damaging it is at the same time. So yeah. it's like trying to... Yeah, yeah overcorrect and then got to bring it back from that now that we're actually getting vaccinated who knows i mean certainly it's got to be partly the control system right that's the always talks about that there seems to be a certain level of covid in the community that americans were willing to tolerate and when it shot up people would get really scared and leave the house less and when it went down then people would be like hey i can go back to the movie theaters because it doesn't seem to do that much COVID." and like australia's set point is zero so when it's above zero we're all freaked out completely lose our minds freaked out because it's been at zero for so long yeah Definitely that. And like we see the death counts that actually do exist after a year of it being in the wild in all those other countries. But at the same time, you also look at it and you're like, well, zero COVID is just absolutely not sustainable. Was it Zvi last week who had 
the reference that one third of the deer population in the US are carriers yeah. of COVID? Yeah, yeah. We're never getting rid of this thing. It's like no. virus reservoirs or something like that is when it's in other populations that we can't possibly isolate. Yep. So, you know, for all those skinks that they killed in Denmark last year, didn't make a difference. <laughs> and that sucks, right? That is important to call out that that yes. sucks. Like the fact that we now have to live with COVID, that sucks. But locking down everyone in their houses forever to try to maintain a pre-COVID death rate sucks even more, right? We have to accept one of these two things. Either no one can ever leave their house again, ever, or we have a higher flu season death rate with COVID. I mean, it sucks that we have a higher flu season death rate with COVID, but it may be something we have to accept going forward. Yeah, yeah, totally, totally. So the other thought that I had on this in general, and I don't know, maybe this will just be a throwaway comment and it won't go anywhere, we'll see. There was a conversation on the Exponent podcast. Yeah, it was the start of this year. So it was around the Trump riots and James Alworth, an Australian who now works for Cloudflare, I don't know if he still works there or not, but like big strategic guy talking with Ben Thompson, Stratechery writer, also works a lot on business strategy. Also strategic. So they were talking about what the responsibility is of corporate actors in, you know, the political environment when Trump is out there playing up, people should go and raid the Capitol, basically. And yep. was it right for Trump to get booted off and banned from Twitter and Facebook, et cetera, et cetera. And yep. one of the comments that they worked through was they have this concept called the priority stack. And, you know, what's most important to you, you really need to actually weigh up ordinal values in your own internal rankings of what is important for you. Is liberal democracy more important than access to Twitter or something like that? And James Alworth made like called out that democracy is more important to him than liberalism is. And that I have felt that ring true so many times in these conversations on the coronavirus down under Reddit, where it feels like Australians are much more wedded to the idea of everyone has a representative democracy and we go and vote and they make the laws than actually the empowerment of the individual and individual rights. We would rather yeah, be right. a democracy than free in general, right? And yeah, I can right, see the right. points for that. But if I take it to the extreme, it's like, so the viewpoint that I kind of read in between the lines there, the Straussian view would be that Australians would rather live under Erdogan in Turkey than under Ataturk in Turkey because Ataturk was yeah, a dictator, right. but he was pushing liberal values hardcore and overriding yep. the Muslim leadership, et cetera, et cetera. But Erdogan is the complete opposite, has massive democratic support, but is a complete dictator and brutally ruling people's lives. And I guess if people actually framed it that way, it seems a lot less appealing. It does. I mean, it comes back to the tyranny of the masses, right? That's the problem with sort of a real true democracy is that 51% can exercise their will on the 49%. If you if you completely jettison liberal principles, then that's where you end up, right? Every three years, you get a choice. But if you are on the losing side of that choice, you can just be run roughshod. So if you're a you know, if you're in a minority in everyday Turkey, then the majority have voted in the person they want in power and they're going to take all your rights, right? And that is no longer liberal, but it is democratic because a majority of people want that and we respect the will of the people. It's, you know, it's tricky. It's probably it not what a, I want. It's a very tricky balance. Yeah, yeah. I mean, where do you land? Do you think Australia's done better or worse than the rest of the world? I honestly just don't feel qualified to say. Like, if I just look at the scoreboard, 
yeah, we've done better, 100%. Yep. Scoreboard, yep. Australia wins, all right? No worries. Yep. If I think about the impact on individuals, I personally am too isolated from it to appreciate it. Sure. Office worker, able to work at home. All my friends are tradies who, you know, are essential workers, haven't been stopped whatsoever. Like, I, I just don't know that many people who work in service industries or who are massively impacted by lockdowns in the cities. Yep. Teachers and parents, that's the vibe I get. And you know what? It has really sucked for us. But at the same time, from that perspective, still feels worth saving those lives. Yeah. Yeah, I have to agree. I, I hate lockdown. I really hate being back in lockdown. And I was railing against it for the first couple of weeks that Canberra was thrown into lockdown. But I have to say that the balance we've struck at the moment where I can go and visit people outside at least, I think it's fine. I think possibly I would set it a little weaker if it was me. But I do think Australia has done well. And I think that the political will to really lock people that hard down has not been seen almost anywhere in the world. And it's probably saved a lot of lives. So it has upset me personally quite a lot. But I think that I'm still on a team Australia. Yeah. I mean, I'm not going to deny we've kind of messed up the vaccine rollout. We've played the America style vaccine rollout when it comes to when America gets involved in wars, they just do, they always do the right thing, but they do it too late. Yeah. yeah, yeah. The Americans can always be relied upon to do the right thing after they've tried everything else. Yeah, exactly. That feels like the Australian vaccine game, unfortunately. So we are paying uh, the price for that. Yeah, and I was screaming about that at the time, and I screamed at my friends, and I feel like I even screamed at you, but I couldn't really yep. convince anyone to accelerate their vaccines. Like, it's a foreseeable situation that COVID gets out of control here, but I couldn't convince anyone. It's not until it does get out of control that everyone wants to pick their vaccines. I mean, is it really out of control? Well, I guess it's no. technically I mean, it's, under, it's under it's the out scheme of out of control. control. It cannot be controlled. Yep. <laughs> right, yeah, so I agree, it's out zero. of control. Right. But it's not like... It doesn't feel like it ever hit wildfire levels where we're seeing massive deaths a day and all that kind of stuff. No, no, no. Again, Australia has done better than almost any other country in the world, I would say. Maybe New Zealand's yeah. better. I don't really know what their vaccination rate's like. But yeah, we, we dropped the ball in vaccinations. But And I don't know, it's just short-sightedness. I don't know whether they can say anything other than that. It's political short-sightedness. It's population short-sightedness. No one in the population really wanted the vaccine because it's like, oh, we don't have COVID, so why do we need the vaccine? Oh, we'll send a bit to Indonesia. We'll send a bit to Papua New Guinea. It's like, oh, Australia's safe. For sort of. So there was no really political will and the politicians screwed up the ordering of vaccines and there was no fire under their asses to try to get vaccinated. So I don't really know whether there's anyone specifically I blame. It's just one of those humans are in general short-sighted and can't see beyond the end of their nose. So if we don't have COVID, why would we bother getting a COVID vaccine? How did I start this conversation? Australians just love to call each other idiots, right? Ah, they're idiots. Australians <laughs> are all idiots. This is the problem. Uh, all right. Well, there you go. Another COVID episode. This is what you get for a podcast in 2021. All right. Cool. So our next topic is something that I have no idea about. It's Oh, really? I've got a like very slight idea about because when it was first being started, I read a critique of it. But oh, really? it's a write-up by an author we have covered before, Slime Mold Time Mold, about obesity epidemic, something like that. Chris is the expert. So I'm just here to react. This is yeah. like... This is a, a reaction and podcast. I'm, curious, I'm very keen because I have not read any critiques like I have my own, but I would be very curious as to the pushback that you've got. Yeah, Time Out, Slime Out, someone who I don't actually subscribe to yet, but probably should, has done a very, very, very in-depth look at the obesity epidemic and come up with his own conclusions of what's causing it. So the basic facts is that 1980 seems to be a discontinuity in weight gain. There was sort of like a gradual increase in weight from sort of the 1900s when maybe somewhat decent records were beginning up until 1980. 
And then 1980, obesity just sort of like really spikes. There's a real inflection point and it goes up and up and up and it continues to go up to this day. And no one's ever fixed it. And is this just America or globally? This seems to be globally. So America, I think America is where the 1980 date is particularly important for America. But you can see it seems to take off elsewhere in the world post that time generally. So it's not a gradual shift up, but it's happening everywhere. Then we've never cured it. Like unlike major causes of preventable death and divisibility, such as tobacco use, injuries, infectious diseases, etc., there are no exemplar populations in which the obesity epidemic has been reversed by public health measures. So no one's ever fixed it. Like we're getting bigger and bigger to this day. Unlike I think it is pretty wide knowledge that you have to eat right and exercise now. Maybe that was more deniable back in the 80s, I guess, but everyone seems to know that today. And it's, it's getting worse. Like today, it is getting worse than it was last year. The last year was worse than the year before that. We are not reversing this thing. Interesting. And is this, this is genuine obesity, so over 30 BMI rather than overweight? Yeah, I can't remember what the threshold BMI? is. Uh, yeah, I can't okay. remember what the threshold is. But this is general obesity and also overweight. So yeah, BMI. Yeah, and it's, it's all based on BMI, which there's some critiques of BMI. If you're like super swole like Brian is with your huge <laughs> guns, you might have a high BMI <laughs> and not actually be, you know, unhealthily overweight. But generally, at a population level, it's a pretty good measure of where we're at. Yeah, uh, when people say obesity, I just think over 30 BMI, which is generally pretty safe to assume is like that is bad for your health to be over 30. Yeah, right. Over 25 is overweight and that's like the fuzzy stuff, but yeah. Yep. And like it's just going up and up and up. So he starts the article and it's like a 10-piece article and I'm not even sure it's finished yet. So maybe, you know, there's a to be continued on this podcast. But there's a lot of theories. It's like, you know, is it we're all eating sugar now. And so he's got at least one tribe. He likes to go through the, you know, hunter-gatherer tribes that are out there that like there's one tribe that subsists almost entirely off honey for the summer or whenever honey is common kind of thing. So they're eating sort of like a huge percentage of sugar and some of them are even trading for sugar. So there's one tribe that's diet is 65% carbohydrate, 17% of which is sugar, which is all much higher sugar than even the average American diet. And they're all lean. They're all like BMIs of 22, 23. There's photos of a couple of them and they look they look kind of jacked. They look kind of ripped. They're, looking, they're good looking guys. Yep. So maybe it's not sugar. Okay, maybe it's fat. Well, the Inuit people ate a diet consisting mostly of seal meat and blubber. 50% of their calories come from fat, not overweight, lean, BMI of 22, 23. Maasai are even more extreme. They're eating huge calories. So I think the normal calories that an adult male is supposed to eat is like 1,800, 2,000, something in that range. The Maasai people are eating 3,000 calories a day. 66% of those calories are from fat. They're eating milk, blood, and meat. And they're lean. They're lean. They're like even leaner than 21. They're like 21, 20 kind of thing. So for every possible, you know, oh, it's sugars that the problem, it's, it's a non-varied diet. There's, you know, there's tribes out there that eat only tubers. They eat basically 70% of their diet is one nut kind of thing. So they have no variation at all in their diet, not fat. So anything that you could possibly put the blame on, it's not, at least it's not exclusively that because there is at least one counterexample of someone eating a truly terrible diet across a population and not getting fat. Yeah, I mean, it's always concerning where there's just one counterexample. Feels like you want a good amount of counterexamples, but let's just yeah, hope for... Yeah, he's usually got yeah, at least say. a couple. And they're population-wide, right? So it's not just yeah. one person who ate sugar the whole time and didn't get fat. It's um, it's a whole population of people, which... And it, it is interesting, actually, to hear the argument there that it's, like, to dive specifically into calorie counts rather than macronutrient composition. Because, you know, yep. exactly as you said, sugars, fats, a lot of the argument around them driving it is well, they don't satiate you as well or whatever. So you can just, you just ex- consume excess calories, but by going straight to the excess calorie or not excess, but just large volume of calorie analysis in the first instance, 
I mean, there could be genetic components as well, but I'm sure we'll get into that. Who knows? Or epigenetic yes. consequences. Epigenetic. The so other epigenetics part. maybe is not dived into very much. But yes, they're, they're, I mean, there's all sorts of things that could explain it. But it, <laughs> it is interesting to me. Like I've definitely heard that refined sugar is the evil and that's why we're all getting fat. But there's definitely tribes out there who eat a lot of refined sugar that aren't getting fat sort of thing. So it cannot be the only thing that's wrong. The other interesting thing, you know, when he's laying out the mysteries is that pets, animals and lab rats are all getting fatter as well. So like lab rats are on a pretty regimented kind of diet and they're all gaining weight zoo animals are gaining weight my cats are definitely gaining weight particularly jacks because he's a fat cat <laughs> well i mean it's probably just the pen industry incentivizing more consumption of food there but you know i mean it's not impossible <laughs> those evil product developers making their food less satiating it's possible even even wild animals are becoming more obese so not just lab animals yeah, not, just people, well. not, not just animals being fed you know manufactured processed food but wild animals are also getting fatter and particularly um what are we monkeys what's the word i'm looking for uh sapiens apes particularly members of the great apes members of the great ape family like the more it does seem like the more similar you are to a human the more you're gaining weight so monkeys and apes are gaining a lot of weight rats and deer i guess are gaining a bit of weight so yeah, interesting so i've got one reaction for you Please, hit me with the reaction. This is the reaction video. Aliens. Aliens. Maybe aliens. <laughs> Sorry, go ahead. <laughs> Why do the aliens want this fat? Are they, they're going to eat us, are they? Is that the plan? I don't know. I just had the ancient aliens meme in my head. Right. Very good. So calories in, calories out is the next thing that, you know, you obviously want to pick on. And this feels to me, I remember um, Julia's reaction to Brian Kaplan's parenting book of like, well, you know, sure, parents don't have any influence on their kids' intelligence, but they must influence their morals. Oh, no, there's here's Brian with a huge amount of evidence that they don't influence their morals. Well, sure, but they must influence at least their religion because you grow up in the religious. Oh, no, here's a bunch of huge amount of evidence that your parents don't influence your religion at all. <laughs> and it feels like that going through the early part of this thing. So calories in, calories out is a pretty obvious model, and it's one I I honestly still subscribe to myself and like the more I exercise and the less I eat, the more weight I seem to lose. I mean, I remember but, you training for a triathlon and needing a staple amount of cake in your diet just to stop It was important that I ate that much cake to stop losing weight. Yes, it was drastic. But it's, I mean, at least according to the studies cited in this blog post, it seems to, the model seems to exist mostly to make lean people feel smug. It's like, I'm thin because I'm a good person. You're fat because you're a terrible, immoral person with no willpower or self-control and you're just a dreg of society. And that doesn't seem to be true either. When you look at like people today are exercising much more than we were, oh, maybe not much more, but more than we were 10 or 20 years ago as measured I don't know how you measure that, but that is how we're measuring it. And your obesity is increasing, right? So we, we are exercising more now. Obesity is increasing. So when and you just said, sorry, I just want to dive into that. Yeah. So you just said it's increasing more. Is that more of the population that it's increasing? Or is it just like potentially the average is going up because there's people like me who go out and train for marathons, like the people who are super into it are training harder? I mean, that's, that's, that's an interesting point. It's not something that I have seen pulled apart and I didn't read any of the initial studies because, as you all know, I do not read the initial studies. <laughs> I rely on Brian to do that for me. Uh, yes. Yeah, and, and you know, averages can be misleading and boiling anything down to a single number can be misleading. But it did say that at least 50% of Americans meet the HSS guidelines for aerobic exercise, which is more than 10 or 20 okay. years ago. So that's a baseline. That's not all marathon runners, you know, 1% marathon yeah, yeah, runners. and like an actual improvement at, at a population level rather than just an individual like metric level yeah it's not a skewed mean but based on outliers it is a population level metric and we are getting fatter so we are exercising more than we were 10 or 20 years ago and we're still getting fatter still could be inequality though 
still could be in so a it could just be yeah, that true. that in a, that other fifty percent could be just expanding, literally. <laughs> yeah, but possibly the people who are getting fatter are not the ones exercising. It's plausible. It's plausible. Anyway, but but the people who didn't used to exercise, they still weren't as fat. So it's like, what's impacting that population? It's still worth diving into if it's fifty yeah. percent of the population. Yep. And it doesn't seem like our calories have increased drastically. It's sort of hard to get our averages of calories even as little as 50 years ago, which is still a while, but like 100 years ago, it's almost impossible. 50 years ago, there's something saying that maybe it was 2000 in 1970 and 2500-ish in 2010. So that's that's a reasonable increase, but it's not. it doesn't seem like enough to explain the massive gain in weight. Although... That compounds pretty quick. Yeah. This is one of my pushbacks is like he cites a lot of studies over like, oh, if you eat a lot over the course of two months, you'll gain a bit of weight, but not as much as you'd expect. And you lose it all really quickly when you stop eating so much. But it's like over a lifetime, an extra 500 calories a day probably adds up a lot. So I'm not sure that that was adequately addressed within the article. I mean, it's kind of the climate change argument, right? Like, sure, human emissions aren't that much, but because they're over and above the natural baseline, it accumulates. Yeah, it accumulates. Yeah, it does accumulate. Um... In lab experiments, at least, even feeding people a huge number of calories, like feeding them until they really don't want to eat anymore, but they're prisoners, I guess, for some of these experimental populations because it was the 70s and ethics boards hadn't been invented yet. <laughs> so you could just do that. People would gain some weight by eating massive excess calories, but they would also just lose it really quickly. So once you took them off the force-feeding diet kind of thing and you stopped trying to turn them into foie gras, they would go back to their normal weight and sometimes even like below their normal weight. Usually they'd keep a pound or two from overeating beyond what they wanted to eat, but they would lose it all even quicker than they would gain it. Like they could actually lose weight faster than they could put on weight on the high calorie diet. Yeah, again, short term studies, but still. But yes, it is It is short term, but it's interesting because one of, and my first pushback, I guess, before I even get to his reasons of what he thinks is going on, is like he talks a lot about this doesn't work for losing weight. And he talks about like different types of diets. There's like fat diet, you know, keto diet. There's low fat diets. There's low sugar diets. There's no low GI diets, high GI diets, all the different types of diets. And they all sort of work roughly evenly as well kind of thing. Yep. And there's a lot of like this doesn't work for losing weight and that doesn't work for losing weight and this doesn't work for losing weight, et cetera, et cetera. But like. That's not the problem he's actually trying to talk about here. Maybe losing weight is actually just impossible, right? Something else is causing us to gain it, and you can just never lose it once you've gained it at a population level sort of thing. Yep. Now that you've abandoned all hope, let's actually try and figure out a different angle on this. Yeah. Abandon all hope in diets. Abandon all hope in diets. Yeah, maybe diets just don't work. Maybe you just cannot lose weight sort of thing, and that doesn't mean that a bad diet didn't cause you to gain the weight in the first place. It just means that once you've done that, you're sort of you're stuck. And he does discuss the idea of the lipostat, that the idea that the body gets used to a certain level of fat kind of thing. And if you're below that, it will try to make you eat more and hoard more calories. And if you're above that, it will try to make you burn off the energy or eat less sort of thing. Yeah, that was what was in my mind when I made that comment earlier about like short-term study. Yep, So the lipostat. If you have a, a longer baseline, then yes, it could distort other biological functions and create a different baseline for your body too. What's the term? Lipostat is the word they use to just, you know, like a thermostat, but for lipids, which is fat. Yeah. A few different names, but it's a reasonable term that catches these kind of things. So what's his theory? Hit me with his theory. So his theory, he goes through all of this. This is a mystery. This is a mystery. Diet doesn't work. Exercise doesn't work. Nothing seems to work for losing weight. We're eating better. We're exercising more and we're still getting fatter and fatter in the Western world. Can I shoot from the hip with like just some general theories? Because you said 1980, right? Sure. And I want to see like... Obviously, I read this one critique, so I've got a theory about what it could be, but I'm just going to throw out other things. What else happened in 1980? 
it's a bit after worker productivity disentangled from oh, no. uh, pay. It's the start so, of great stagnation. It's the start of the great stagnation. Well, that, that, those were both the 1970s. So I'm going to discount those. Okay. There was Ronald Reagan, so maybe deregulation of the financial industry. What else happened in 1980? Bottled water became a thing. Is it bottled water? Wow. Was that 1980? Yeah, right. Yeah, I think bottled water was actually really, really late. Or it could be diet soft drinks because I think Tab came out in around 1980 as well. Yeah, right. So there you go. There's like three theories. Deregulation of the financial industry, bottled water, or diet soft drinks. <laughs> I, don't know, I don't know where you're going with that first one. The first one, like, you know, I'll blame those financial bankers on basically anything. They're evil and they're the downfall of society. But I don't know whether I can blame this on them. <laughs> All right. So hit me with the real stuff. So the reason he went down this particular garden path was there does seem to be an altitude component as well. The higher altitude you are, the thinner you are. So people in low altitude areas tend to be fatter than people in high altitude areas. So his theory is that there's actually just some chemical, some wash away chemical that gathers in the water basin, gets into the water supply and causes us all to store more fat. He's got three different theories from what I remember. And is that like true longitudinally as well? Like I can understand it at a point in time because your body just requires more energy to maintain itself at a higher altitude. So has the have the higher altitudes put on less weight over the same time period as well? Well, it does seem that when unaffected. people move to a higher altitude, they can very rapidly in some instances lose weight sort of thing. And when they move to lower altitude, they gain weight fairly significantly. Yeah, but that just goes to my point of it just requires more energy to maintain your body at a higher Maybe. altitude. But we're burning more energy anyway, right? If 50% of us are getting the American guidelines of, I mean, it depends whether you want to discount that evidence entirely because you're going to call it cohort effects. But if we're all exercising more and we're still getting fatter, we're probably burning more energy and it's not the burn on more energy that's causing us to lose weight. Uh, yeah, but I just still expect to see, I don't know, if they have always been equally thinner compared to the general population, I feel like that would boost the argument, right? Yeah, that would be interesting. I don't know whether there were similarly, it would be very interesting to see data from 1970 as to whether that altitude effect held or not. Yeah, yeah. absolutely. Anyway. I feel like I want to make a big post on his blog because I feel like we've got some interesting points here and also it's a good way to promote the podcast. Hee, 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 hee. So, yeah, so the theory that he wants to hang his hat on is that there's something accumulating in the water supply and it washes downstream. So people at the basin of the Mississippi or in South Australia, I guess, at the end of the Murray are getting more of these chemicals because the water has gone through, had more runoff from whatever pollutant is polluting us in general. And it builds up in greater numbers at the lower altitudes, which is an interesting theory. It's an interesting theory. I guess, yeah, it would be pretty easy to disentangle that for Australia. Just look at it exactly as you said, Adelaide versus Albury. I've taken surprising notes on this, but uh, I have not done my own independent research. So maybe we can do that as a feedback for next episode. That would be interesting for sure. Does the theory hold in Australia? Okay. Well, Australia's definitely been getting more obese. So the trend theory would work, but whether it relates to altitude or not. Yep. Does he have a theory on what the causative agent that would be leaking into the water system? So he's got a few. He's got three of which I can remember two. So livestock antibiotics are a big one. So possibly yep. the amount of antibiotics are disrupting gut biomes. And you hear a lot about gut biomes. I hear a lot about gut biomes. People love their gut biomes. So if we're just nuking them all with antibiotics, then that is a possible cause. And the other cause is near and dear to my heart is PFAS uh, chemicals. So PFAS are a surfactant that is often used in firefighting and apparently a whole lot of other things. And it's a huge family. PFAS isn't just one chemical like I sort of thought it was, but there's like a million different subtypes of PFAS. And those chemicals have just were invented in the 60s or 70s and came into widespread use in the 80s. And plausibly, it is that building up in generally in the environment that is disrupting our 
microbiome. Yeah, I like a good microbiome argument. Always fun to yep. discover a new universe, and this was a relatively recent discovery. So yeah, yep. A lot of interesting stuff going on there. And Roundup. I think Roundup was his third. Uh, maybe Lithium. He's got a few. He discounts Lithium, I think, and he's not super into Roundup, but I think PFAS and Livestock Antibiotics were the two that were top of his list. Yeah. Okay. Interesting. I mean, they're not as crazy as it seems when it's just like there's something in the water. But yeah, okay. Yeah, I'd be really interested to see. He does go through a fairly rigorous of like something that happened in the 80s. So it's probably invented a bit before that because it takes these things a while to get widespread sort of thing. So and these chemicals fit that bill and being invented 10, 20 years before and coming into widespread use in the 80s. So plausibly, that's where the discontinuity happens. I mean, how else would you test it? Because like, as I said at the like earlier in the conversation, bottled water became a thing around then. And there are quite large populations globally who just sustain themselves off bottled water. Like Thailand, going around there, they have like mass distribution centers for clean water that you drink from. So you're not, like, I guess it depends on where that water is being sourced from. Surely that would be a a point against though, right? Because I I agree, particularly in third world countries, that bottled water would be more prevalent than in modern Western nations where we have a good water supply. And they're not as fat as us. So bottled water doesn't seem like it would be the culprit based on that argument. But are they getting, is their growth in obesity going up equally to us? Like I think actually Mexico is much fatter than us. Well, not much fatter than us, but fatter yes, than I us. Yes, I think Mexico tends to lead the world. Yeah, uh, it's a few uh, Pacific islands are the most obese in the world. Yeah. So, and I'd be surprised if there wasn't similar growth in obesity in Thailand, which is the example I just gave for water. So. Yeah, no, I, I remember when I was in Thailand, there was ads about being obese kind of thing, that it was a real problem. It was starting to be a real problem in there when I was there in 2012, 2013. So maybe that'd be just an additional data point to weave into a study on this as well. Hmm. All right. That was fun. It's fun. I'm happy that I live up in the mountains. I'm happy that you live up in the mountains, I guess. Me too. Yeah, no, I'm probably five kilos heavier than I wish I was and I can't seem to lose it. And it doesn't actually seem to matter how much I cycle. I felt like when I was not cycling very much that that was why I'd put on the weight. But I feel like I'm cycling a reasonable amount now and I can't seem to lose it. I'm also eating worse than I was 12 months ago and that doesn't seem to have gained any. I'm not sure. I mean, yeah, I've been overweight in my time. My body tends to have a natural, like even when I'm thin, my BMI is usually around 23 and a half to 25 like it just is in that range it is really yep. hard for me to get to the 20 so maybe it is just the water that i drank but i don't know i grew up on a farm we always shipped in our water or we had just rainwater. didn't have bore water no bore water no fortunately bore water. i'm gonna calculate my bmi right now what is it it's like kilos over the square of your height or something probably but you just type it into google and they tell you um maybe 23.6 that's healthy that's good then I am bang on 25. 25? So there you go. Higher than me. Because he's huge guns. I would be, if I went and had a drink right now, I would be technically overweight. So there you go. All right. And good thing I was the one with the whiskey and not you. Clearly. And I run over 50Ks a week. So it's not all That's exercise, a lot of I guess. Yeah. So calories in, calories out. It's a difficult one to explain. The other one, so he touches on this, but doesn't delve deep into it. He even talks about like, it's hard to make lab rats overweight. So they sometimes for studies, they want the lab rats to be overweight and they can feed them like a pure fat diet and put them in pellets and change the nutrient balance and whatever. And it doesn't work. And they gain a little bit of weight, but not a lot. When they give them Fruit Loops, they get like massively overweight really fast. Pop-tarts, <laughs> Fruit Loops, like cafeteria diet, they call it. 
it happened by accident once and the rats gained a bunch of weight and now that is like the accepted science way of making rats overweight for study <laughs> is to give them the cafeteria diet so hot dogs highly processed food and so yep. part of me and like i feel this in myself to my very bones is like Modern food is so delicious that it short circuits my brain. Like I literally cannot open a packet of chips without finishing it. Like you, I'm sure you have watched me many times when I'll be like, ah, Brian's over. I have guests. So I'm allowed to have chips. And I'll say, Brian, would you like a chip? And I'll give you a chip. And then I will eat the rest of the packet of chips, like <laughs> unconsciously, unable to stop myself. I'll be like, I've had enough chips. I'm going to stop eating that chips as my hand is reaching into the bag for another chip. This was always the thing with board games events at your house was just a matter of there'd be the chips in front of me and at a certain point I'd be like I am moving these literally to the other side of the table where I cannot reach them because it's just happening I like I cannot stop myself from eating those chips I cannot so I cannot open chips in my normal life like I will never buy a packet it is a rule to myself that I will never open a packet of chips without guests there I don't mind chi- like I love chips but I will never open it just like oh, I'll just have a few chips after work as a snack or whatever I cannot do it like I'm physically incapable no. of stopping eating chips yeah you just got to set the systems up for yourself so you're not indulging like that basically yeah yeah I think so I mean I guess if we're not eating more calories it's not but I feel incapable of resisting some modern highly processed foods chips being the primest of examples in a way that like I would not just endlessly eat apples. I wonder how many chips I could honestly eat. If you just gave me a bowl of chips and didn't really make me notice how many I was eating, I wonder how many chips I could eat. I bet I could eat multiple packets in a sitting. Yeah, I agree with that. Mm. So the the meta point that I guess I wanted to bring out is like slime mold, time mold, not a dietitian, not even a scientist, I don't think, just an amateur. And it gets banded around in the internet intelligentsia that like, Maybe experts are always wrong about everything and you just need a smart person to look at the things in really strong detail and they'll come up with a better idea than all of the experts combined. Has he done this? And what do you think in general of that kind of attitude that like a really smart person attacking the problem can just read the papers and do better than any expert who's spent their entire career in that industry or discipline, whatever you want to call it? I would say he's got some interesting ideas. Has he done better than anyone else? I mean, I think this is just a general point. For diversity, it's not necessarily about the lone genius who can come in and know everything. It's not about Feynman being able to discern a flaw in a nuclear diagram, just coming in with zero knowledge and infinite intelligence or whoever that quote was. I don't think it was Feynman. might have been von Neumann. Also quite smart. But in general, like I think it's just a point for if you can have more people thinking creatively, you're more likely to come up with a solution because creativity is is fundamental to overcoming these things sure and do you think that by being too immersed in a problem you get too accepting of its you know social standards and ideas and whatever and you can't be like yeah i think there's going to be systematic pushes for groupthink and allowing people like slime multi-mold to ideate on a blog on the internet is a great thing like enabling that encouraging it sure because it can come up with some out there ideas i don't know that those lone geniuses are going to reliably produce better results but i think it is better for society overall to have them even the lone nut jobs out there coming up with wild things that may have some good ideas behind them to be researched but you still need that end state research otherwise you end up with just anti-vaccine propaganda well yeah and you need the researchers to put together all these papers for him to read to come to you know random conclusions of his own right yeah exactly so it's just a it's another point for diversity but that's just a starting point Well, I hope it goes somewhere because I don't want to be overweight. It seems bad for you.
It's coffee bedtime. It's coffee bedtime. Now, unfortunately, for better or for worse, today was my last singing lesson. I have decided not to renew. I did enjoy it a lot, but I find my life is filling up with many other hobbies and things to do. So I thoroughly enjoyed my time singing, but I will stop for now. I look forward to the Christmas work Christmas party where I fully intend to belt out Bohemian Rhapsody. Uh, <laughs> but possibly my coffee bedtime intro singing will, will come off a little bit from now, dear listeners. So I apologize for that, but, you know. We've all got to prioritize things in our lives. There's nothing wrong with just having a lot of fun with a hobby for a short period of time. Yeah, I loved it. I absolutely loved it. I thoroughly liked my singing teacher. If you're in Canberra, I can highly recommend it to anyone. She's a great teacher. I had a ball while I was learning. I do feel like I'm a much better singer now, but I just don't want to put effort into studying, getting better. I'm sort of, I'm just done. I'm just done for now. I can sing at an adequate thing and I don't want to do it anymore. So that's the end of that. Sometimes, you know, it's okay to leave goals achieved. That doesn't have to be a perpetual treadmill. And it doesn't always have to be a hedonic treadmill. Indeed. I'll leave that for coffee machines or gadgets or cars or something else. <laughs> something else. Cool. All right. What are we actually betting on? I've got no idea. I'm sorry. It's a topical podcast. So we're going to have our 78th bet. We're going to bet on COVID because it's the COVID show. It's the Brian and Chris talk about COVID show. So. What, what possible new avenues we can bet on? When are we getting out of COVID? lockdown? When, when is the Australian dictatorship letting us out of our houses without the military to escort us or whatever is happening that in our illiberal on non-democracy? Or like a percentage-wise or how do you want to do this? Uh, tell me if this is a reasonable definition of out of lockdown because I think there's going to be some level of restrictions for ever probably. Like if we're still taking our, our shoes to fly, then probably we'll have COVID restrictions of some uh, kind forever and ever. Yep. But I want to set out of lockdown means I can visit you and stay in your home. Okay. Yep. So that sort of covers Victoria, New South Wales and ACT in terms of lockdown. Yep. So it means freedom of travel within states and freedom to visit non-household members inside. That feels like end of lockdown if I can come and visit you. Okay. December the 1st, 2808. December the 1st. <laughs> yeah. <laughs> Oh, 2808 so far in the future. I can't say I totally disagree, but I'm disappointed. <laughs> we will, of course, have the song Doomsday by Nero linked in the show notes. It's a banger. <laughs> uh, but no, I actually do think it's December 1st. I'll go with that. December 1st is actually a pretty good bet. It's got to be around that time if I'm listening to the political winds, which I so rarely do, but COVID grabs my attention in the way a little else can. I will go the early side of that. From what I'm reading, we should be fully vaccinated by early, mid-November. So plausibly it gets ahead. But December 1st is such a just like a good date for a politician to choose. That's uh, a good date. With I don't know why I have it in my head, but I have like the vaccine percentage population vaccine. The current projections is around the 16th of November. I don't know why I've got 16th in my head. And I'm just uh, adding two weeks two onto weeks. that for the vaccine yep. efficacy to kick in. Yep. 80% 17th of November. So that would put, yeah, the 2nd of December it. being plus two weeks. Yeah. I mean, I'll take the low side of that if you'll give it to me. So if it is yeah, December sure. 1st or later, you can win it. And if it happens in November, then I can visit you. I'm not saying that I will, although I might not give you a hug because you're not a very huggy guy, but, <laughs> you know, have a coffee with you. Coffee sounds good. I mean, I'd happily come up there as well. So it's <laughs> also good. Also good. Out. Get out. Let me out of this house. Let me out of this state. Yeah, okay. I feel like this is an easy bet because at least you agreed with my definition of out of lockdown. There could have been a bit of back and forth on that. But And December 1st, it's a short running bet, which is nice because some of these bets can go for years. All right. There's huge news in Diablo 2, right? There is huge news in Diablo 2. 
because after literal years of waiting for someone to do it, we've mentioned Summoning Salt previously and his fantastic mini documentaries on the history of world records. They're very good. They are very, very good. I've been waiting years for someone to do it for Diablo 2. And after years of waiting, I did it myself. Sometimes you just got to be the change you want to see in the world. Sometimes you got to be the change you want to see in the world. Yeah. Taught myself how to edit videos. That was a big learning curve. Watched 30-something hours of Diablo wow. 2 speedruns. Some with horrendous video quality. Wow. How can you tell if Diablo 2 is in bad video quality? Isn't it like four <laughs> pixels? <laughs> Oof. Oh, my heart. You can tell. <laughs> and yeah, went back through the old forums, somehow managed to weave my way through the internet of 2004 and dig up a lot, a lot, a lot, a lot of old forum posts detailing how things have progressed. So part one has just gone up on YouTube literally hours before we started recording this podcast. Hopefully by the time this podcast goes live, part two has gone live. And then double hopefully I can get the whole series completed with part three by the time it hits September 23rd and the remaster is live. And then I can just focus on playing the remaster instead of making silly videos. That's exciting. So that's it. That's the news. I don't know. There's probably been other speed runs going on, but (laughs) I've been focused on learning new things instead. Fantastic. Oh, we have a, we have a message from a patron, a patron that I don't know. They're one of the few patrons that I don't know personally. Uh, so I'd like to finish this up on reading that out. Yes. I apologize, patrons. Like, I should log in here more, but I haven't logged into our Patreon for a while. And this came through, oh my goodness, this came through in July 27, and I haven't been ignoring it since then. Dorian, I apologize so much that we did not read this out because we truly value as a patron. Podcast is great. I listen to a bunch of stuffy podcasts that are intellectually rewarding, but require a ton of attention. I also watch some incredibly brainless YouTube. Apex cuts nicely between the two with pacing and topics that are edifying, but easy to digest. I'm starting from the beginning and only on episode 12, but here's hoping it's still good. I like the editing quite a bit. Well, Brian, Brian, and the pacing is very good and uh, in a very slightly non-linear and positive way. No thing on the show notes, which makes me a little sad, but that's okay. The editing is definitely better and more work than the show notes. So, Look, the tangents wouldn't be the tangents without you, Chris. I'm getting even better at tangenting, I think. I sometimes have tangents queued up before we even started the episode. I'm like, oh, here's where I'm going to dive off down, chase some rabbits. Wonderful. All right. Thank you so much for the feedback. Yeah, I really appreciate that, Dorian. Thank you so much. I hope you can get up to this episode before you get bored of us, and I hope you enjoy the shout-out. Wonderful. That'll do us for this week, folks. Been fun hanging out with you. Thanks, everyone. We'll talk to you in a fortnight. Definitely weigh more than 30 kilograms. Yes. Yep. Me too. Considerably more. What is this? A BMI for ants?